You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative coronavirus conversations that we've had this week on our daily radio show. And Jason, you know, we kicked off saying it's a new month, new quarter this week, and yet it's a quarter that's going to be all about the health, economic, and market impact of the virus. We talked with leaders from all walks of life, medicine, politics, telecom, and of course, the beaten down hospitality and restaurant worlds. Well, and this week felt different, I think, Carol, in the sense that we started to talk to people more and more about what's right now, but also what's next. And every single aspect of our lives has been changed and will be changed by this. And as you listen to this show, I think you're going to get a sense of that. Because as you say, we talk to people in all walks of life, CEOs, retired generals, mm-hmm. chefs, yeah. and you know all of their lives are changing. They're trying to adjust. And so getting inside all of these businesses, it was actually really, really interesting. Right. And let's remind everybody, Jason, that these conversations with leaders in their respective fields, it's happening in real time throughout our week as news concerning COVID-19 and its impact continue to break and shape our daily lives. So let's talk about who we're going to hear from over the next couple hours. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, he weighs in on those corporate bailouts. He's got a very hot take. Alan Patrikoff, someone who's been in the business of investing in startups, some names that you know over the past four decades, and Glenn Fogel of Booking.com, and that's just to name a few, Carol. Yeah, and let's just point out, Glenn Fogel found out this week that he was tested positive for COVID-19, continuing to do his job, so a really timely conversation on so many different levels. First up, though, we caught up with Hans Vestberg. He's the chairman and CEO of Verizon Communications. This week, President Trump held the call with telecom giants, including Verizon. Uh, of course, we are in, in a very serious situation in this country and the whole world due to this pandemic. Uh, and of course, uh, having that in mind, uh, you also understand that uh, the networks becomes more critical for people to communicate and keeping business up. Uh, we, we see a, a, a clear surge in our in our network. Uh, we see enormous a lot more of calls. I mean, we, we have today 800 million calls a day, which is twice um, as much as we would have on the Mother's Day, which is the biggest wow. day of the year. We, we have 9 billion messages a day, a day, and that's equal to a New Year's Eve. So we are on peak every day of the week. So that tells you how much traffic I have. At the same time, I see total new patterns. I have 50% growth in VPN access. That's basically when, when you work from home to right. a corporation. That's 50% up. And you see over 100% growth in gaming in the network at the moment. So all that at the same time, you know, uh, as uh, people are moving around in the country in a different way. So, uh, but the networks are keeping up well. Uh, I would say it's very robust. We have, uh, I have to say, the engineers and the, and how we have built our networks over the years is really proven to be the right thing to do right now. The networks are holding up well. The right. other uh, data, data I can give you just uh, as the change of behavior, we see that handovers between radio cells has gone down with 29% nationwide. That means that people are moving so much less today compared to just a week ago. And if you take a place like New York Metro, it's down 53% that people are moving between one cell and another, a radio cell to another. So we can see that the behavior is changing, the uses of the network is dramatically changing in these times, and we understand the importance to keep the networks up and in good health. Hans, you know, both Jason and I do hope this, you sound good, so I'm hoping you are, your family's doing okay, your employees, how, how are your employees doing with all of this? That's uh, a very good question. Our, our mission is very clear. Number one, safe and healthy, over 135,000 employees worldwide, majority in the U.S. I would say I have some 115,000 people of them working from home. And we, sw- we swapped that in less than two weeks. We swapped works we have never done from home before. Uh, so that's, 
that's one category. Then, of course, I have so vital infrastructures. I need to have certain uh, of my uh, technicians out in the field to actually manage and maintain the networks. And, of course, that we only do for critical things. Uh, but, you know, we need to keep up the first responders networks, the hospitals. We need more move capacity. So I have a crew that's actually out there. And then, of course, I also have some stores open for right. just critical deliveries. So they're doing fine. But, of course, we're impacted as any other company in this uh, pandemic. And I just want to do a shout out to you guys because you guys have implemented a virus leave of absence policy. Anybody who gets the virus eligible up to 26 weeks. So what you're doing and everyone who had a job before the virus caused the shutdown, they're going to continue to do so. Is that correct? Correct. In a crisis like this, uh, uh, the responsibility of companies are, are enormous. And, and of course, I feel that. Uh, but we reassure all our employees, if they cannot work uh, and they can work from home and they cannot work, we reassure them about their payments and their salaries. And that same goes if they're impacted, if they need to stay home with children. Uh, but we also understand that some of our employees at work, uh, not working in an office, and coming home, we are actually giving them tasks as well. And so we have an exchange of work. So hmm. you actually have something to do because it's yeah. also very, very dull to be home and not have anything to do. So we, we do that at the same time. And that's Verizon Chairman and CEO Hans Vestberg. And Carol, we caught up with Hans earlier this year under very different circumstances. We were talking about big sporting events. We were talking about 5G. Right. We were talking about the streaming wars. Obviously, his business dramatically changed. And as you said earlier in the show, he was with the president, uh, at least telephonically, trying to understand what they need to do from an infrastructure perspective. Well, Verizon, one of the companies that has seen a surge in internet traffic. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the CEO of Booking.com on how the coronavirus has impacted the travel sector. It's a business story for them, but it's also a personal story for the CEO of Booking.com. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of our favorite, we think the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show about the coronavirus, its impact across all businesses this week. One of those important conversations, Jason, was our chat with Glenn Fogel. He's the CEO of Booking Holdings and Booking.com, home to some well-known brands, Priceline, as I mentioned, Booking.com, OpenTable, and more. But let's remind everybody that this was also a personal story because Glenn found out that he was tested positive for COVID-19 just this week. Well, thanks for having me. And I feel fine. I've been very, very fortunate that I had the most mildest of symptoms and recovered very, very well in between the time I was tested last Thursday and the time I actually got the results two nights ago, all the symptoms resolved. So I am perfectly fine uh, physically. Of course, emotionally, you know, I just feel so bad for people who have not been as fortunate as I have been. And I I know how hard it is. I read about it. I hear about it. I have friends. I know others who are not having an easy time with this as I did. Well, we want to talk about the the end markets, obviously, Glenn, but tell us about how your company is is dealing with this in a world where, I mean, travel has just essentially stopped. Travel and entertainment have come to a screeching halt. What does it look like on the ground to you? Well, look, it's been very tough, even though, as you point out correctly, a lot of travel has stopped. The fact is, there's a huge number of customers who had set up plans that needed to have their issues addressed. Mm-hmm. We were dealing with 400,000 contacts a day in just Booking.com alone, dealing with people who are scared, frustrated, concerned that they need to get their money back. And that's an issue when you have people who bought something a few months in advance and now all of a sudden, maybe they're losing their job, they're concerned about their health, and they're trying to talk to us as quick as possible. Hey, something's changed. I need, can you help me get my money back? And it's, it's, it's hard. And it's hard our customer service people are hearing these things, and we're doing everything we can to help people. Because in these situations, contracts do allow people to get their money back in many cases. And it's something that our people are working all the time. It's, it's hard on everyone, though. Well, what about, you know, this, the stimulus programs and packages that are coming out of Washington, Glenn? Do you feel like um, your voice and your industry is being heard pretty clearly and you're getting the assistance that you think is that should be, should be coming your way? 
Well, listen, it's just so great that the government has stepped up and made an initial uh, start to helping the economy. It's not just the travel industry, it's everybody, but travel's been hurt more than anybody. And the airlines, the hotels, everybody, when you have zero revenue, that's really, really bad. So this is a good start, and I thank the president, I thank the Treasury Secretary, I thank Senator Schumer and, and Speaker Pelosi, everybody for coming together and doing what was absolutely necessary. But I think we all recognize that's just a start. That's not going to be enough. This crisis is going to go on for too long. And we know during that time period that we're going to need additional stimulus, we're going to need additional assistance, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So what does the industry look like when we get on the other side of this? You know, we've been asking this question of so many people, you know, how will the coronavirus pandemic change the world? I mean, you know, what will be the most important, and in your view, you know, underappreciated way that the world will be different when we get on the other side? Well, the first thing is it's not going to be like you switch a, a you know, you just switch yeah. a switch. It's right. not of how course. it happens. What's going to happen is we're going to have domestic travel come back first. People feel better about traveling domestically, and I'm certainly sure people are going to start traveling by car more than planes to start off. Then you'll start seeing more and more people flying domestically. International, it's going to take some time. And the reason is you're going to have countries that are still going to be hesitant to want to have a reimportation of the virus that they've already done a good job of stamping it out. And they're going to put in a lot of checks. You're going to see fever checks in, in all airports that are going to try and catch if anybody's coming through who may be infected. And certain, certain jurisdictions, they're going to ask you to download an app to track where you are because they want to know if you've come from another country and if you turn sick, they want to know who have you been close to so they can then alert other people. So people may have to give up some of their privacy if they want to go to certain countries who are going to be a little more hesitant about letting people into their countries. So things will be different, but the thing that won't be different, people are still going to want to travel. I know that. People have always want to travel. They always will. We just have to get past this virus. And what about in the world of sort of entertainment and and sort of people meeting with each other over meals and restaurants and things like that? Only got about 45 seconds left. How does that change, Glenn? Just our our sort of more intimate day-to-day lives. Yeah, look, uh, at the beginning, there's going to be distancing, no doubt. And they're going to say, I don't want to go to a big crowded concert, for example. If you say, I don't want to be packed in with a bunch of people. I want to have some space. That's going to be just natural. But people's human nature does not change. And I know this because I know how many people after 9-11, on the September 12th, people said they're never going to get on another plane ever. And you know something, in a few months, they got back on planes. Same thing's going to happen here. People are going to go back, they're going to travel, they're going to go to open table, and they're going to get reservations, they're going to go dining. We're going to all be good again after we get past this virus, which will happen. I got to say, I can't wait to travel and I can't go wait. I can't wait to go out to a restaurant. So, I know. Glenn, we wish you so well and thank you so much for finding time for us. Do stay healthy and uh, we hope your team does well through this uh, in addition. Glenn Fogel, President and Chief Executive Officer at Booking Holdings. I should point out, Jason, that their company's brand CEOs decided to forego their salaries. Their board of directors voluntarily declined to accept cash retainer payments. They've been cutting expenses and spending, so they've been really uh, retrenching to get through this uh, crisis. And that's Glenn Fogel. He is the CEO of Booking Holdings and Booking.com. And again, someone who we have gotten to know over the past couple years, that business obviously so core for a lot of our listeners in terms of going on trips, whether it's business or personal, that industry has effectively shut down. And so how do you alter, how do you change course in a business like that? So glad we could catch up with Glenn. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, a conversation with David Musifer, the chairman and managing partner of Advent International, also lead director of Lululemon. A great chat that you had with him. Looking forward to that. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about the coronavirus this week. And Jason, we really did try to reach out to leaders in all fields because, as we know, everything's been impacted by the virus. Well, and this is a guy I really wanted to hear from, David Musafer. I've gotten to know him over the past few years. He's the chairman managing partner of Advent International. And if you remember, I wrote a story for Bloomberg Business Week magazine, did a long-form conversation with him and the CEO of Lululemon back in December – 
It was a different world, but I wanted to catch up with David to understand what he was seeing both as an investor and as a director of a very high-profile company. Check it out. Well, David, let me start by asking you, first of all, how are you? Like, What's it like for you personally, family-wise, just sort of as a human being here? Well, I mean, firstly, that's the first question that we share with everybody, which is firstly, just how are you doing? Because this, the physical element of this is unlike anything we've ever dealt with before. And so thank you for asking. Personally, I'm, I'm doing well. And actually, I'm, I'm uh, quarantined here in uh, outside of Boston. So we're uh, in the suburbs in Boston. And I've got uh, uh, four 20-year-old uh, kids, and three of them are actually here with us. So um, it's been in the face of some really difficult times, some unique elements of, of being with your family. And how how is it uh, feeling and looking there on the ground in Boston? I mean, I know you're outside the city, but I know you're in touch with a lot of people. You're very active. Uh, from a civic perspective, uh, you know, I feel like different cities in different parts of the country are at a different moment here. And, you know, we're recording on March 31st and it's a, it's changing daily. Uh, but what does it feel like in and around Boston right now? Well, I mean, I think it's probably equivalent to the major Metro areas. If you think about obviously New York, which is so, so such the epicenter right now, but Boston is a half a step behind and right there. So there's a lot of fear and concern that I think exists here in London, in Paris, certainly Madrid, and, you know, so many of our major metropolitan areas today. And Boston, you know, we have terrific medical care here in the city, but I think everybody is certainly mindful of the time and, and where we sit today at near the, you know, the peak of this crisis. And so uh, let's talk about the the firm and your portfolio companies. And I guess I'd start with the firm. How do you, everybody's sort of learning these lessons. We are certainly day to day. Uh, How do you run the firm at a time like this remotely? This is such a people intensive business in many ways, relationship intensive. Well, I mean, Jason, the one thing, you know, we have offices in uh, uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong. So... Uh. Badly, we, we had a little preview of, of how we were going to need to manage remotely. And so we were prepared and, and uh, set up for remote access once, you know, we got to that point. And I think one of the lessons, we actually distri- distributed this the very first day of our, uh, you know, the, when we went to remote work worldwide we shared a lessons learned memo that we had asked our team in Asia to prepare. And it was both, you know, pointers, serious points, lighthearted elements. But the key theme that we heard loud and clear was the need to over-communicate the need for video, because as humans, we take so much of our cues from facial expressions that you actually can, can't get over the phone like we're doing right now. And so, you know, those were some elements that we realized early on were going to be really important to make sure that we were prepared to do that. And so is that a situation, David, where, I mean, you sort of have to invest in some infrastructure that maybe you wouldn't normally have, or does all of this, does all of that already exist for you? Well, I think the, you know, the critical infrastructure that allows you to have access to, you know, your data as well as to have systems that you can use remotely were the access points. But I think like everybody, you know, they're spending much more time in the video conversations. And so literally, you know, just using WebEx and Zoom and a host of other resources like that have become the critical link. And that's David Musfer, the chairman, managing partner of Advent International and also the lead director of Lululemon. And Carol, you know, I love the private equity guys in part because they have all these inputs, right? Right. And I think talking to the private equity folks, the venture capitalists, I mean, because they all have portfolios of companies that often are in different fields, it's great to get a, a feeling of how those companies are doing, especially at such a stress time like we are in today. 
And that's just a part of the conversation I had with David Musafer. He talked more about what they are doing from a charitable perspective through their companies. That entire conversation, it's almost 30 minutes long. You'll want to dig into it. Uh, it is our Business Week Extra podcast this week. Check that out on your feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from Stanley McChrystal, a retired four-star Army general, about how cities can better fight the coronavirus. He's helping lead the fight in Boston. War footing indeed. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. Carol, all about the coronavirus this week. But as we settle into this new normal, obviously, one of the things we're asking is what's happening now, but also looking ahead. That's right, Jason. And we had the opportunity to catch up with retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal. He has been tasked with leading Boston's emergency response to the coronavirus pandemic. We talked with him about how he's helping out the city and just got some ideas about leadership in this really troubled and stressed time. What we are trying to do is to help organizations bring together wider groups of stakeholders and collaborate better to achieve synergy. So if you take that model, Mayor Walsh in Boston asked us if we could help them change from a a normal mode of operations first into a crisis response mode to the COVID-19, which brings in more people communicating on a daily basis in a keystone form that they have every morning, which brings them together and then also help prepare them for longer term for not just this crisis, but the crisis after next. And so what does that look like, General, in terms of what is the shift? Give us an example of of what that shift entails, either in terms of the personnel, in terms of the pace, in terms of the assignments. Sure. Uh, Mostly in a crisis, one of the key things you have to do is get a shared understanding, a common contextual appreciation for what the situation is, And then you have to align on the strategy so that you can execute things that actually make sense. So one of the things we find is you bring people together on a more more frequent basis. What Mayor Walsh does is bring them all together for an hour every morning. It's all virtual. Hmm. Everybody's brought in, and he gets updates from all different players, police, fire department, health players. And so everyone gets a common understanding. And then they solve problems right on that Uh, call. It's a video call. And they start doing it. They capture the lessons of those. And then they put that out every day as an update. And so even more people can get that uh, sense of understanding. General McChrystal, you know, last June, you last year in uh, in June, uh, you and I talked at the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit, and we talked about leadership lessons that you've learned along the way and, and what CEOs can do to be more effective leaders. In today's environment, you know, what advice can you give to today's political and corporate leaders? Because as you know, a lot of criticism has been levied at our political leadership out of Washington. And I'm not looking to point fingers here, but you know, what have we learned that can be constructive about what mistakes were made early on and what can be applied now to get this under control? First off, uh, thank you for speaking again, Carol. It was a pleasure to see you last year. I guess think about the, the threat we've got now. We've got an amorphous viral enemy that is frightening. That's the pandemic, COVID-19. But we've also got the uncertainty of an economic shutdown of the economy, or at least temporarily so. So people are assaulted from multiple directions. Nobody really knows how to defeat a pandemic on their own. And of course, we feel helpless when the economy changes so suddenly. So I think the first thing leaders have got to do is be straight with us. Get in front of us and tell us what is known. Give us the data in in very candid terms. People can take that and you will build credibility over time. Even when the truth changes as data is updated, it's okay if you come back and say, okay. But I think people need to understand what the situation is. Then the second is give people a sense of commitment. Think of uh, Winston Churchill in the summer of 1940 when he told the British people, we will never surrender. He couldn't promise quick victory at that point. Everybody knew it was very, very difficult to head. But what he communicated was absolute idea that we're in this together and we'll come out of it together, as we will this crisis. I, well, I think inspiration follows as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting point, General McChrystal, because it, it feels like there there has been a turn, and I wonder if you agree with this, over the last week or so, maybe even the last few days, that people are starting maybe to embrace that notion of shared sacrifice, individual responsibility, you know, it, sort of attaching themselves to this notion of, okay, what can I do? And part of what we can do, it sounds like, is nothing. Like, stay at home. Like, don't go anywhere. Um, but but we, there is a sense building, and maybe I'm just being overly optimistic, that people are, are, are kind of reading that right. Well, I, I think that's right. Uh, I think the American people desperately want that. You know, we really haven't asked the American people to go to war mm. since World War II. Ever since that, we've always done limited. And even after 9-11, there was this brief period when we talked about we were all in this together, and then it kind of felt like pretty soon we weren't. So yeah. I think there's a hunger in the American people to do that. But it's going to take the idea that we're not fighting 50 separate state fights against COVID-19. We're fighting a national fight. And it's not a national fight. It's a global fight. I think the American people will respond dramatically if the leadership asks them to. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I do wonder, too, you know, we keep talking about, General McChrystal, about kind of the longer-term impact of this. How do you think the coronavirus pandemic ultimately will change the world? You know, and specifically when we come out of this, what's the most important, in your view, underappreciated way that the world will be different? Well, I'm going to throw two scenarios to you. The first is when societies are under pressure, Sometimes they unify, they come out stronger, and sometimes they fragment, like Iraq did after 2003, the Balkans did in the 1990s. So what I'm going to describe as the positive is not a guarantee. It's if we make it happen. But what I think happens is the pandemic stresses us. It reminds us that we are connected. It reminds us that global supply chains, personal relationships, everything are connected. And so we don't win alone. We don't even win in small groups. We don't even win as single entities or nations. We win more broadly than that. And and if we have an appreciation for that, several things happen. One, we start to think a little bit more broadly about problems like global warming, like income inequality, and other things that dog society. And then I think our way of working is going to be different. It, it was sort of a shock to a lot of organizations and people to have to work from home. But now we're only a couple weeks into it, really, and a lot of people are finding that they can stay connected. They've got to learn some new techniques. They can do some things. So I think businesses are going to migrate to a new normal that's sort of a hybrid from where we used to be, because we won't do away with offices entirely. But we're going to do a lot more connected, which is actually going to open up our ability. It's going to widen our reach as individuals and organizations. And the most agile the most aggressively networked organizations, whether they're military organizations or businesses or governments, are going to come out really well. Well, and it's so interesting you say that you went exactly where I wanted to go next, General McChrystal, which is, you know, now in the private sector, you're working with a lot of companies. You advise CEOs and, and many others. And I do wonder, even though some similarities exist between government leaders and, and corporate leaders, you know, businesses ultimately have – different stakeholders and employees and customers and, and whatnot. What are the lessons that maybe a CEO can learn that might be slightly different from a military leader or a, a government leader? Sure. Government leaders and military leaders can wrap themselves in the flag and, and cause and, and motivate people that way. Business leaders, it's more difficult. You can talk about the, the goal of the company. But in reality, business leaders have a big advantage because the, the pressures of the marketplace – can both cause you to make dramatic turns and it can allow you to make dramatic turns because if you've got a company that's just making money year over year and you go to the board or, or stakeholders and say, we want to change dramatically, you may not get automatic support. But a very competitive environment, then suddenly the CEO is not only allowed, but he's ex or she's expected to make that kind of significant change. And that's pretty liberating. Absolutely. And, you know, I do wonder when you looked at the situation in Boston specifically, and just when you look at the situation around the country, really around the world, I mean, does any of this feel, um, I don't know, a little bit overwhelming and just a reminder that 
there are certain systems we've got to have in place. I mean, the military has to do it all the time, right? They're constantly probably asking themselves, what if, what if, and we've got to have the backup systems. And I really do feel like this crisis has revealed to us how many backup systems we didn't have uh, in our society. I, I think that's right, Carol. Uh, but, but there's a danger. We learned this in the military. If you try to plan for contingencies, you never get it exactly right because the the risk that comes up is always a bit different, but it doesn't mean planning for contingencies doesn't have value. That's retired four-star Army General Stanley McChrystal, who is leading uh, the fight against the virus in Boston. So great to catch up with him, Jason. You know, at a Bloomberg Live event uh, last June, I caught up with him to talk about leadership uh, when you're really stressed and when you have your own personal crisis. He's had to deal with that. Now he's helping the city of Boston deal with uh, the virus pandemic and just trying to, you know, get some ideas about how best to lead in these times. And uh, I thought it was really great to just catch up with him. Well, and the military metaphors, they work here. And you understand that a lot of the ways that people fight real hot wars, that is actually happening day to day when it comes to the coronavirus. Well, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour. We'll hear from former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, provocative thoughts uh, and writings from him about the bailout for companies. Yeah, it was interesting after we did this conversation. I was telling my family about, and they're like, whoa, Robert Reich, interesting. Oh, Bob, weighing in. Uh, Really interesting conversation there. Also, Alan Patrickoff, love catching up with him. Four decades in the venture capital business, what he's seeing when it comes to investing, and also he is a political animal. He had some thoughts on that. And Danielle Ballou, one of the best-known chefs out there fighting a different sort of battle on behalf of the restaurant industry. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show that runs 2 to 6 p.m. Wall Street time every weekday. Obviously, all about the coronavirus. But Carol, we hope taking it a level deeper, understanding where we are now and where we may be going. That's right, Jason. So many of our conversations were talking about what our world is like when we get on the other side of the virus. And we actually talked about that with Alan Patrickoff, an early venture capitalist. He helped build and grow such companies as AOL, Office Depot, Apple Computer. We caught up with him. He also is a big Democratic fundraiser. So we talked politics with him as well. And former Secretary Robert Reich, we talked with him. Yeah, loved catching up with him. He had some bold ideas, as he often does. But first up, the restaurant industry been hit incredibly hard, effectively shut down by the coronavirus. We spoke about the situation with a world-famous chef. That is Danielle Ballou. Well, uh, it's, uh, it was an experience we didn't have a plan for as we decided within uh, 24 hours to shut all our restaurants and to uh, furlough uh, entire staff. And, uh, of course, it's devastating because um, we think we have to do it. We do the right thing. And I was one of the first to close um, together with the Bernardin and Danny Meyer. We, were, we, we didn't talk to each other, but we made the same decision the same day to shut all operations within the Friday the 13th of March. And, and then following that weekend week, of course, everybody had to close after that. And we tried to think of uh, possibility of continuing to uh, produce food while uh, keeping some staff. And uh, I felt that New York was such um, a danger exposing all our staff to try to do that. I, um, I didn't have the courage to do that. And uh, that's not mean we will not do it soon as New York gets a little bit better, for sure. But... Um, you know, it's it's terrible not only for me but for everyone in our industry right. yeah. for having to, you know, have all their staff on unemployment and people who have been with us for 25 years who have been through thin and thick uh, and and really who days we have a lot of hope because we are doing things uh, such as we did a charity called Aninan with mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Bulli Foundation where we raise money for our, our staff and today we had our first meetings for distribution and we really already helped 50 people uh, today 
but uh, 50 of our staff, that's not all, but at least it's the immediate need and for the one who are really in hardships and, and need to start to pay some bills or medicals or family or food. And uh, we continue to raise money and we continue to right. support them. Uh, of course, we also are trying to uh, make sure that we um, we have the right support. So we had a call with the president on last Sunday with Thomas Keller, Jean-Georges, myself, and Wolfgang Park. And someone, a connection through Wolfgang, uh, a gentleman was uh, uh, able to get us um, a, 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 a conversation with the president. Right. And, and of course, we talked about a lot of things from the insurance situation, which is a big one right now. Uh, the business interruption, the insurance are kind of denying everything at this point. Yeah, let's and, talk about that if we can, Danielle. I want to—pardon me for jumping in—but that is critical, I think, at, at this point. And I know you've been working very hard on this insurance issue. Tell us what's going on because you have some insurance companies, as I understand it, who aren't saying, who are essentially saying this basically doesn't qualify. What's happening and what needs to happen? Well, we have a form uh, with a um, with a law firm. We have formed a, an association called We Are Big, and Big is for Business Interruption Group, and We W E R Big B I G dot org is explaining a little bit what we are trying to do, and a lot of lot of restaurateurs and chefs already all over the country are subscribing to We Are Big because we feel that together we can have a voice uh, big enough that uh, there will be some real um, incentive for the government to work with the insurance and for the insurance to work with us. Right, right. And what, from what I understand, the lawsuit is about, you guys have said, you know, that says insurance companies are, are wrongfully denying business interruption coverage for all businesses in the U.S. And you're in, and supporting federal subsidies for insurers that pay business interruption losses caused by the coronavirus. In your conversation with the president, were you guys able to talk about this? And I wonder if there's any support for that out of the government. Mm-hmm. Very much, and the government are looking very deeply and carefully into that. Uh, absolutely, the president was really concerned as well, and he was very uh, open to to look at it and to really understand closely. I think he has all his legal um, uh, support there to to advise him on our claims and what we are looking for, uh, but. Uh, it's uh, it is um, there is a technicality who should protect us uh, in the language of insurance, and I think uh, that technicality has to be taken uh, to court. I guess. And that's Chef Danielle Ballou. We had a hint of what he might say from our amazing Kate Crater. She follows the food world. She knows all these guys incredibly well. And I have to say, he was very candid, very on point, I felt like, Carol, in terms of what has to happen next. And it does feel like he knows he's in a position, speaking of leadership, to lead. Well, speaking of that, he and some other well-known chefs were talking with the president over the past week or so. And we also heard the president talk about the restaurant industry. So they are looking for some more assistance from the government as well. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, a conversation with longtime venture capitalist and Democratic fundraiser Alan Patrickoff, the founder and managing director of Graycroft. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, all of it related to COVID-19, Jason, but it was talking about where we are in the world today, but also starting to look about what happens when we get out of the pandemic and what does our world look like? Well, and this is where it helps to talk to people who can give you some perspective. And no one has that like Alan Patrickoff, 40 years as a venture capitalist, now the founder and managing director at Graycroft. Check it out. Well, listen, it's very obvious. This is, uh, I think, I don't know how you can call anything less than devastating to certainly small growing businesses, uh, you know, to the companies that are larger, the IBMs, the Microsofts of the world. Uh, they can withstand it. Apple, people with, with great balance sheets and lots of cash on hand, 
they'll be, you know, they'll weather this fine. The real challenge is to the smaller companies, uh, even small below the venture capital level, the local businesses with small shops and small, uh, whether they're uh, industrial type uh, companies or, or retail or consumer service, they're all being severely uh, affected. Uh, and I, you know, and that's, that's going to be here for the next 30, 60, 90 days. I mean, this, this uh, peak point we keep hearing, first it was April 9th, then it was April 15th, then April 30th, and now we don't know when the date is where it's going to peak. But it's, I think we're in for a, a difficult time going forward. And so, Alan, what does that mean for, you know, you, you mentioned that the, the big firms are, are resilient. Tell us more about smaller companies because, you know, they have less wiggle room. You know, some of them don't have those fortress balance sheets that big companies do. What's the mood among, you know, the smaller companies that we know you're in touch with? Well, yeah, which is my area of, area of focus. There's right. no question. Smaller companies are in a very disadvantageous position. Uh, uh, unless they have a very strong cash position uh, and not a lot of debt, uh, they are going to be under severe pressure. And even if they have cash, if you don't have enough cash on hand to, for 6 to 12 months at least, uh, you're going to have real concerns in, a, in a, an environment where raising money is going to be harder than it's been, and it's never easy. Uh, I think that you've, you have already seen immediately uh, significant layoffs, and I think you're going to continue to see that. I would expect the unemployment figures are going to uh, increase dramatically, uh, and I, I think we're going to be seeing that for the next couple of weeks till we get to a, 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 a level point in the business world. Forget about leveling off and the uh, flattening off of the, of the virus curve. I think the uh, problem in business layoffs is it's just not, people are doing it gradually. They're not all acting fast, but Frankly, the, the secret to staying alive here is to take quick action and to not sit and contemplate and study the problem too long. I think that uh, one has to get a business in a financial shape very quickly, and which means cutting your expenses and realistically reassessing what your revenue uh, expectations can be in this environment and you know, which customers you have are going to survive, who is going to pay you, and uh, managing your cash. What does that mean for your portfolio companies? I mean, you're invested in gaming, fintech, healthcare, software, publishing. I mean, you're in so many different areas, healthcare. Um, what does it mean for your portfolio companies? What are you saying to them? Um, what are your expectations in terms of their survival? We're across the board, as you just said. I mean, clearly, if you're in the right areas of healthcare, you're okay. If you have any kind of service that's uh, performed from the home. Uh, you mentioned a gaming where a company called Scopely, another one called Dot. Both of those are game companies that people pay on, play online. They're doing very well in this environment. We have a, two a home uh, delivery grocery companies, one called Thrive Markets, which is kind of a, a, a better, a, a less costly thri- uh, Whole Foods. And then we have another company called Box, which is doing bulk deliveries, which is a even cheaper Costco. So uh, those companies are doing well and are hiring people and can't meet, meet up with the demand. Uh, we have companies that are dealing with special aspects of, of the public market, uh, building portfolios on, on, online. They're doing very well. Uh, so I think it really is uh, uh, selective. If you're in a retail store chain, you've got a lot of problems. Fortunately, we don't have too many companies that are in the retail area. Most of our companies are in e-commerce that are selling merchandise, and so far, those seem to be holding up. But everybody uh, has got to look, take a, a new look at their budget for this year and say, realistically, you know, I can't just expect that what I call a cascade of miracles, which is everything's going to be, be all right and everything's going to turn out well. And, and I, uh, I think you've got to prepare for, you know, a, a really severe thunderstorm uh, and perhaps a hurricane. Alan joins us on the phone from the Hamptons, where I trust uh, a lot of people are. Alan, what's it like out there? Well, it's not uh, uh, Times Square, but I think people are following the rules and staying secluded. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, we're in my home and uh, very tight and not having visitors and 
not visiting anyone else. So we're like everyone else is following the rules. There are a limited number of cars uh, on the road, and there are uh, the only people that are open are the restaurants, which uh, are served have takeout at night. Uh, and, a, and a drugstore. But other than that, everything is shut down. And that's Alan Patchcroft, the founder and managing director at Graycroft. So much more than that title might tell you, Carol, of course. I loved getting into politics with him because, you know, he's the sort of person who can refer to Joe Biden as Joe and mean it, right? I mean, he knows <laughs> yes. these guys so well. He knows the political landscape, and he also knows what this may portend for, let's not forget, this is a presidential election year. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to take a look at the team that's looking at ways to save the world. We're talking about finding a cure against the virus. We'll chat with Columbia professor Alejandro Chavez. Recently, that team was the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. This is a hopeful interview, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the coronavirus, of course. And we know, Carol, this is at its core a medical crisis. Correct. And medical teams, healthcare teams around the country, around the world are all racing to find a cure. Alejandro Chavez is one of those folks, part of the race. He's an assistant professor of pathology and biology at Columbia University. He is part of a team, as we said earlier, that's looking at ways to save the world. Listen to our conversation. Yeah, so I think basically uh, there's a lot of interest to see if we can develop some sort of therapeutic against COVID-19. There's several different teams involved. Kind of the whole school is really becoming mobilized and really trying to see what we can do. Uh, The core part of the group that was featured in Bloomberg are trying to develop several things. One are uh, antibodies against the virus that would prevent the virus from being able to infect cells. And then two other, three other teams are actually all looking for drugs that could prevent the virus from either replicating um, or for being infectious. And so that's kind of what's going on um, from the kind of Bloomberg piece. Right. And so, Alex, you know, from the perspective of people who aren't nearly as smart as you are, help us understand what's different um, about this and what those differences mean in terms of how you attack the problem. Yeah, so uh, not all viruses are the same, you know, just like people, and so they all have little differences. And the differences between viruses can be quite large. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can't take something that works on flu and I'll actually assume it's going to work for this virus. And in fact, a lot of drugs that work on flu work on processes that this virus doesn't even use. So, you know, every single virus has a little way that they like to get into cells, replicate inside the cells, and get out of the cells. And it turns out that in the case of coronaviruses, we don't really have an approved therapy that we know for sure works on them. Um, in general, they tend to just cause like, the common cold, and so there wasn't a huge incentive to discover a therapy. Obviously, two decades ago, we had SARS, and then, you know, several years ago, we had MERS, and that should have been a wake-up call that maybe this is a problem, but it obviously wasn't, and now we're kind of stuck with the current problem we have. Well, and we did feel like a theme today is that we did hear from a lot of different um, members of the healthcare or drug community about what they're working on, and I do feel like there's many things going on. What's the most promising? What's the quickest? What are the most long-lasting in terms of us getting the virus under control and managing it so that we can go back to living our lives safely and not worrying that every time the coronavirus comes back that we're going to go into this lockdown state. Yeah, so I think the, the longest treatment that if we make it work would probably be the best is vaccines. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing beats vaccines. Vaccines have transformed. The reason why we're probably alive today is vaccines. Um, and so if you really could find a vaccine that was broadly active against coronaviruses, that would be amazing because they're incredibly safe. You can deliver them very easily. Um, outside of that, I think the next sort of thing you're hoping for is some sort of broad molecule that maybe inhibits some aspect of how the virus copies itself or some aspect of how the virus kind of processes its proteins. Um, But really, I think vaccines are very much going to be a great solution. But as far as an immediate solution to someone that is sick already, then uh, the thing that's probably most likely is an existing drug that we're going to try to see if we can make it work for this virus. Maybe we'll get lucky. Or it's, there's some people trying to take antibodies from those who have already mounted right. the defense against the virus and transfer it to those who haven't had the opportunity to do that. Is that right. real? So most immediate. Is, and, that, and that, okay, could that be a really big tool in, in fighting this? Yeah, I mean, that's, 
the way that we used to treat diphtheria back in the day, the way that we actually treat like snake venom poisoning nowadays is actually mm-hmm. that. You actually take animals and you infect them with the venom, and then you take their antibodies and you can give it to people. Um, so it's tried and true. They've been doing that for like a long time. So if well, it works, it would be effective. And it's interesting because we did talk to a researcher down at Johns Hopkins who's working on that project, as, as I'm sure you're uh, aware of, Alex. So help us understand the, the sort of collaboration here and also this sense of urgency and what it ultimately means and how the work gets done. Because, you know, I think the story was relatively clear about the idea, and you've alluded to this, that you're trying to cram literally years of work into a much, much shorter period. What, what, what's the give and take there? Yeah, I think the thing that's been amazing about this whole opportunity is really barriers and walls have really come down. I mean, I've never seen people so agreeable, so happy to work together, so open sharing information, which has been amazing. I think it's it's transformative for us to be able to push things forward. Also, administratively, I think people get the urgency, and so they're all jumping to do what they can. Um, but there is some aspect of you you have to do good science, right? We yeah. don't want to hurry and rush to a sloppy solution because that doesn't help anyone. And if we get it wrong, that could really be detrimental because once – you know, once things become dogma, they're very hard to break, right? So once someone thinks that this is a solution, it's going to be tough to, if we find out later that it's not, to get people to move away from it. So I think we're being uh, quick moving, but also prudent. That's Alejandro Chavez, assistant professor of pathology and biology at Columbia University, part of a team that were recently featured on the cover of the magazine, Business Week magazine. They truly are looking at ways to save the world. And Jason, this is certainly a medical story, a healthcare crisis, and everyone around the world is trying to figure out how do we stop the virus. I really enjoyed that conversation. He's someone we are definitely going to keep in touch with. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, former U.S. Labor Secretary Robert Reich. He's always got a hot take. And today he's talking about corporate bailouts. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show about the virus this week. And we did this, of course, Jason, as the news continued to unfold. Right. And we were so eager and excited to catch up with former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. He's now a professor at UC Berkeley, but still keeping a very close eye on politics and policy. He's got a new book out, and he has a take specifically right now about corporate bailouts. Well, we need all of the taxpayer money we possibly have right now for individuals. Uh, That bill that was signed into law, uh, it provides uh, $1,200 per person, uh, just a one-time payment. Now, I don't know how many people listening to this program can get by for very long on $1,200. The typical American earns about $1,000 a week and has expenditures that are just about that much per week, but $1,200 uh, is not going to extend nearly far enough in this pandemic, which is estimated to be uh, two months, three months, possibly even four months. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we agreed, or at least provided in that bill, for $500 billion of bailouts uh, to very big companies, including airlines and Boeing and a lot of other big companies and industries. Uh, well, the, here's the issue. Uh, I think we should have learned this in the big bank bailout of 2008. Uh, these companies uh, have been in bankruptcy many times before. They know how to use the bankruptcy laws to get uh, to reorganize their debts. It's not as if they have no collateral. They have a lot of assets. I mean, the airlines have planes and landing slots. They're going to be worth a lot once the economy is back on track. Uh, the uh, the ships, the cruise ships, uh, the hotel industry. I mean, you talk about assets. Uh, these organizations, these corporations have uh, very, very large assets. Uh, and yet individuals have a great need right now. So I'd say rather than bail out companies, let's bail out people. If there is going to be a fourth a co- a coronavirus uh, relief bill coming up, and it looks like there will be. Mm-hmm. Let's focus it on people rather than on corporations. 
Well, and I want to talk to you about that fourth bill because it's going to include some infrastructure. I really want to get your thoughts on that, Bob. But before we get to that, I, I do want to ask you, because I think this speaks exactly to what you write about in your book. I mean, clearly part of what's going on here is the system is set up to do exactly uh, what you described as the wrong thing in many ways, which is companies have an inordinate amount of power and influence in Washington to get that half a trillion dollars, right? Exactly. And that's, that's the problem. Now, you would have thought in times of national disaster, emergency, uh, certainly in wartime, uh, all of those old power relationships are suspended and companies understand and the government understands that we've got to make uh, the first priority human beings and safety. Uh, but this time around, uh, we didn't quite get there. Now, there are some things in the bill that are good. Uh, unemployment insurance, $600 over and above the unemployment people are eligible for. Uh, that's a step in the right direction. But if, if there is a fourth bill, uh, let's just not uh, worry about big companies. Uh, let's worry about small businesses and individuals and families. They're the ones that need the help. Well, and you know what's interesting, because we've been having this conversation, um, Bob, with a lot of our guests here, and and some say, well, you can't let these companies go down. You know, they this is, who could have guessed this black swan, right? Nobody could have been prepared for it. I mean, what do you say to them? And, 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 and these folks will also say, you know, these companies employ a lot of workers. So by taking care of these companies, we're taking care of the workers. Um, what's your response? Well, the companies are laying off workers right and left. In fact, this week, uh, big companies are laying off probably several million additional American workers, in addition to those who were laid off last week and the week before. Uh, so what is the point of uh, taking care of big companies that will exist? I mean, these companies, United Airlines isn't going anywhere. American Airlines isn't going anywhere. These companies, uh, three or four or five months from now, are still going to be there. Uh, it's the height of folly to think that these companies can't take care of themselves. Uh, and again, just if we're talking about the airlines, every major airline has gone through bankruptcy over the past 20 years at least once in order to rearrange its debts and its creditors know how they do it and its creditors are willing to let them do it because of all the assets they have uh, these companies are contracted they're a bunch of contracts uh, they are a bunch of uh, executives top executives and they are some big investors uh, but none of those uh, requires or deserves a bailout particularly at a time when so many individuals and so many families are being such are being hit hard hit uh, so hard hit uh, this is a health emergency uh, not only do we want to get income income support to people and families we want to get a uh, health care support to people and families uh, who need it uh, and we ought to, we ought to do it immediately how much do you worry about the essentially sort of fracturing of the healthcare uh, system you know based on the stresses uh, that you're seeing there well i'm very worried about it as we all should be because all the reports we're getting from all over the country is that our healthcare system is already at capacity if not over capacity in places like new york uh, we're finding hospitals just can't deal with all of the people who need uh, desperately uh, need help uh, ventilators and icus uh, and even uh, people inside the hospital, nurses, orderlies, mm -hmm. ho doctors that can't find the protective equipment that they need. Uh, we'll find that the entire uh, health care system is flooded uh, to way, way beyond its capacity uh, within the next two or three weeks. I think the big question for the future is whether, having experienced all this, Americans change their minds about whether health care ought to be uh, organized, as right. it now is, largely uh, as a for-profit uh, corporate venture, or whether we do need to think about a different kind of health care system. Well, and that's what I, w I was curious about. You know, what, what you see, how the coronavirus pandemic will ultimately change our world, you know, you know, how, you know, once we get emerged from the immediate crisis, what's the most important, in your view, underappreciated way that the world um, will be different? Well, if you look at how wars uh, have changed public attitudes in the United States, and I'm thinking particularly of the Second World War, uh, America was able to accept certain kinds of changes uh, that really the, the country didn't want to accept before. Look out, and, and that's true also of the Great Depression. Uh, it's because of the Great Depression that we were able to 
uh, institutionalized Social Security, something that we uh, would not have, have, have had the political and social capacity for accepting. Uh, the same thing with Medicare after the uh, Second World War. In 1965, uh, Medicare uh, was, again, something that, although it's very popular now, as is Social Security, at that time, uh, we accepted it because we felt like we were all in this together. We had emerged from not only the World War II, but also the Korean War and the Cold War. We were still in the Cold War. We were all in it together. Uh, I think that after this pandemic, it is possible. Now, I'm, I hope I'm not looking at it through two rosy-colored glasses, but I think it is possible that we may understand that, at least with regard to minimum safety nets and minimum health care, uh, we need to do much more for our country and, uh, and each other than we are doing now. We can't ever afford uh, to find ourselves so unprepared and so uh, with so lacking in the basics. The richest country in the world uh, can't even uh, pay, make sure that all of its people are safe. Uh, that makes no sense. And will this, Bob, do you think in the short term or if there is a different administration come next January, will it change the way certain governmental entities, including maybe the one that that you oversaw, will it change the way they operate given what we've seen in this crisis? Well, let me say this. I, I, it's hard to know, obviously, sure. what, what's going to change and what's not going to change. But I think Americans as a whole are gaining a deeper appreciation of how important government is. Yeah. And when government does not really function as it should, uh, most of the time, for most of us, it's just an irritation. Now it's a matter of life and death. And I think that changes the calculation. It changes the stakes. And people emerging, Americans emerging from this may say, we may say to ourselves, now again, there's no guarantee, but we may say to ourselves, you know, we really do have to have a government that works well, that functions well. We cannot have leadership and people in responsible positions that don't know what they're doing. We've got to have a public health system that is uh, the best in the world. Why not? And that's former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Really excited to catch up with him. And not surprisingly, Carol, he has some very specific opinions, but also some solutions. And I really appreciated that about what we might be thinking about next, because let's be honest, the stimulus, the government reaction, it ain't over. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcasts. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And get the latest edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.